and welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. This is a podcast all about Bitcoin. What is it? Why is it important? And who is involved? You can expect rich conversations focused on people's personal journeys through the good and the bad. You'll learn how intrinsic to society money really is, with Bitcoiners from all across the ecosystem detailing their unique lens on this nascent technology. Discussions cover a myriad of different topics, economics, education, entrepreneurship, history, human rights, mental health, philosophy, politics, science, sustainability, and technology. If you're anything like me, then you'll find this the most engaging subject you've ever encountered, so I'm sure you will enjoy it. Lastly, if you like the show, please share it far and wide. Family, friends, everyone you know can benefit from understanding more about Bitcoin. Now, let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. Today I'm speaking with Robert Breedlove. Welcome, Robert. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. No, absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm so excited you've taken the time to join me. And as I briefly mentioned offline before that um, you've been hugely influential in my thinking towards Bitcoin. So thank you very much for all the work you've done. And uh, I look forward to our conversation today. So I, I, I always start in the same way, Robert, if you could give us a, a brief kind of overview of what you're involved in at the moment. And what we'll do is cycle back and work out how you became or what you do today. Um, and where the genesis of it all came from. Yeah, sure. So I am currently spending my days working on the What Is Money show. Um, that's the podcast that I run and consists of basically being a philosophical deep dive into the nature of money. Um, but it's, you know, if you don't, listen to the show, you might think we're really financial and economics focused, which we are to a large extent, but money seems to touch most things in human affairs. So, um, I incepted this long form series format. So my thinking there was largely inspired by Jordan Peterson, actually, where he described his success as being part of this technological revolution where we now have essentially free bandwidth. You know, we can sit here and talk for hours and hours and hours and distribute it to the world for almost zero cost. Um, <clears throat> so that idea sort of stuck with me in that, okay, here I am going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, wrestling with big ideas why not just give them all the airtime they need, right? Let's just talk as long as we need to talk, as long as the content warrants conversation. And clearly you can't do that in one episode. <laughs> so uh, especially in the Bitcoin rabbit hole where nobody knows where the bottom is. So I started doing these long conversations. My first series was with Michael Saylor. I think we, and we have 17 total episodes together, totaling, 25 or 30 hours in content. Um, and yeah, I just, I think that's, I, this is one aspect of the digital age where I think it's, it's reinvigorating this dialogue that we used to have. Um, we used to have a lot more of, but then in the 20th century, things became kind of this top down broadcasting model. You know, you just had a few people telling a lot of people what's going on in the world. Whereas now we have more of a mini to mini model. Um, so I work on that now. I, I really feel grateful and privileged to do what I do because it is very much a labor of love. I, I've always been a lifelong reader. I'd like to read pretty avidly since I was like 11, 10 or 11 years old. Um, and then when I got into Bitcoin, which I'm sure will impact that whole story at some point, it gave me this impetus to start writing. I was learning this brand new about this brand new technology. There were a lot of really good writers in the space that helped me. So I thought I would start writing um, to help share what I was learning in the process. And then I was being invited onto podcasts to talk about what I had written. And those podcasts became popular. And I found that when you 
it's one thing to read. It's another thing to write, but it's a whole, there's like some kind of emergent phenomenon. If you read about something, then you write, you know, you filter this through your own perspective and write about it. And then you have to go on to these media appearances and talk about it. It starts to crystallize your understanding in a way that I thought was really, really powerful. Um, so I got to this point where, again, glossing over the history, where I just decided that education was going to be my primary focus. It's, I've always been into self-education, as I said, but now, you know, and I don't, don't exactly like to call it education because I consider all of us to be students. Right? I'm not trying to be a teacher or put myself on a pedestal or anything, but I just want to, I call it learning out loud or learning in the light. And that's really what you're doing on the show is, you know, I, I try to engage the most prolific thinkers in the world that I can get a hold of on the biggest ideas that I can think of. And we just go long form on them. And it's, it's quite the rabbit hole podcast. Um, so I spend a lot of time focusing on that, which is the recording, but also the preparation. I like to, my guests and I typically prepare a conversation outline prior and it could be more or less sophisticated. Some of them, like with Mr. Saylor, he sent this entire master's thesis of an outline. Uh, some of them could be a, a little more impromptu where I, we just throw together an outline maybe a day before. But I like to come in with the structure of the outline that gives some order to the conversation, but then also allow for a lot of meandering um, and, you know, the chaos of conversation, if you will. So I thought kind of the balance between the two would be really nice. Um, and ultimate goal. <clears throat> Well, ultimate goal of the show is to really just contribute to this, again, dialogical process to help people discover truth, right? Not, not that we do it on the show per se, but there's this whole global market process of people talking and trading that zeroes in on truth. So I want to be a part of that. Um, but also to get myself and my guests to the edge of our own understanding and conversation. I think that's where the magic really happens. And that's where the audience deeply engages with the content. It's almost like a spectator sport, if you will. There's this, it's almost indescribable, but you know it when you hear it or see it. Two people that are wrestling with this big idea and they keep throwing different perspectives at one another and they're reaching towards something that neither one of them quite have. But, you know, again, each of us has the logos, but in, in, connecting those and dialogos, you get closer to this, these really big truths. Um, so yeah, sorry, that was probably a bit of a tangent, but that's, <laughs> no, Robert, that's what we're here for. Um, well, and as I've already mentioned, I, I couldn't thank you enough for, um, for the work you've done. It's, it's not a situation I ever imagined myself to be in sitting on YouTube for hours and hours and hours <laughs> listening to people talking about economics and philosophy and literature and all of these different elements to life that seemingly were unconnected but with the context of money as the, the central theme it all gets drawn together and it's why bitcoin is just the most compelling subject i've ever come across and one of the reasons i'm doing this podcast is to to also try and learn about it more myself like from a selfish mm. perspective but also um to try and teach some other people about how engaging and exciting it is. Um, and some people don't give a shit. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I can think mm -hmm. of like a hell of a lot of people in my, you know, semi-close circle that just don't care. But then others mm -hmm. really, really get drawn in. And that's what's, um, I guess, the rewarding part of it. Um, your, your Sailor series is phenomenal. Um, that's something I, I watched every minute of. And it's just extraordinary to me that, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you needed mentors, you know, as, as mm. I actually lost my father when I was 20, just to share something privately about myself. And so mm. I, I really struggled to find um, decent advice uh, mm -hmm. in areas of, you know, um, business, essentially. 
And suddenly there I am on YouTube listening to people that you can gain this relationship with that you begin to trust for free mm. anywhere mm. in the world at any time you so choose. And you're mm -hmm. like, hang on. If I said to my dad that I've got a YouTube advisor, he'd be like, what are you talking mm. about? Like, that doesn't make right. sense. But by spending the time listening and, and going through the concepts that are discussed, you do actually begin to create this strange affiliation with what's going on. And you mm. can make really important decisions with that, especially from a financial perspective, given Bitcoin's prevalence as an incredibly safe place to store wealth, but also as an incredibly interesting potential upside as well. Um, mm. And it just blends in the most incredible way. Um, yeah, so, so Robert, what I'd like to do is, is cycle back a bit and learn a bit more about you know how you became interested in Bitcoin. So going before that, per se, um, you know, you mentioned you're always interested in reading. So were you reading about technology? Were you reading about money? Or was it just a general kind of hunger for information? Um, was entrepreneurship anything that came into your life? Like, um, teach me a bit about what you did as a teenager and into your like early 20s. Yeah, so um, I, first I'll, I'll share with you as well. I actually lost my father in my early 20s as well. Um, but we we didn't have as deep of a relationship as a lot of people do so it wasn't as hurtful to me but still you know it's impactful to lose a parent yeah so. oh yeah yeah um and i just on the just to mention on the sailor series i, I take no credit for that <laughs> <laughs> the guy is I, I literally prepared a very sophisticated outline and sent it to him. And he's like, yeah, that looks great, but here's mine. <laughs> and he sent me what I thought was from a book. I was like, Did you, is this from a book you wrote? Like, what is this? He's like, no, I just whipped it up. And it's truly wow. incredible. Wow. And I had the honor. This was back, you know, in August, 2020, when we did that originally. And then I had the honor of having... I've met Sailor a few times in person, but we had dinner at his house in Miami during the Bitcoin conference mm. this year. And he told the story of him getting into Bitcoin. And he said that when he he first heard my episode on the Pomp podcast, which is a pretty cool intro, actually, for people that aren't into Bitcoin. It, mm. A lot of people have told me that it orange-pilled them mm -hmm. because I kind of go through this you know, global perspective on money and technology and all of that he said that was the point he realized there were some really deep thinkers in the bitcoin space and then when i invited him on my show he, he felt like he had to really step up to the plate boom look at that and, uh How man, cool. he, did he ever he it's unbelievable i you know i've recorded the series with him i've probably watched it once but i also have seen different parts of it and clips and edits and all that and yeah, there it's like I said, 20 plus hours, but it's all dense, nutrient dense material. So I hope people check that out. Um, to get to your question, how I started, you know, we used to have this assignment in school, summer reading. I don't know if you guys do that in the UK, but they would basically, you know, we have something similar, school. I guess. You're in school in the fall and the spring. But then you, you're off for summer, at least when I was growing up. I don't know if it's still like that. So we'd have, I don't know, two months off, something like that. Mm. And the one assignment we would get, and this started in sixth grade, perhaps, is that they would send you home with a book. And so your assignment is to read this book this summer. And then when you come back in the fall, you'll write a report on it. And so we got assigned this book. I think we got to choose perhaps from a few different options, but I chose this book titled Hatchet. And it was about a young boy and he was flying in like a single engine propeller plane from one place to another. I don't recall where. And the plane crashes, pilot dies, and he's left basically in the middle of the wilderness all by himself. And he has to learn how to survive. And I, I'm, again, the details of the book are a bit blurry because I read it when I was quite young. But as I recall, he really just had a hatchet to start. He just had one hatchet from the plane and the clothes on his back, essentially. And he had to figure out the rest. And for whatever reason, that book really grabbed my attention. And um, 
I just couldn't stop reading it. It was so good. And once I, I finished the book and I was, I just had developed this hunger, I guess. I just, I felt like I had discovered a tool. It's like, wow, I can really do this reading thing all by myself. I can look into the mind of someone else. They, you know, can share a story with me. They can share, you can share anything. You can learn anything. And so I don't, it it left quite the impact on me. Just the way I, hmm, the way I thought about engaging with the world, I decided reading was really important. And my mom had also been a big influence. She'd always encouraged education and schooling and all of these things. So, um, I also had this really, my whole life, a really deep curiosity about really the cosmos. I would say nature generally, but cosmos specifically. I grew up in Tennessee, so we spent a lot of time outdoors. And at night, I often found myself just looking up at the night sky and in wonder, really, like what in the world is all of this thing that we're in? And so when I found this skill of reading and decided it was a really good way to equip myself with useful knowledge and in combination with my my curiosity about the cosmos, I guess I'm probably 12 or 13. I tried to just go straight to the deep end. I started reading Stephen Hawking, Universe in a Nutshell, A Brief History of Time, Brian Greene's An Elegant Universe. Um, A lot of these books on astrophysics, really. (laughs) And as you can imagine, a 12 or 13-year-old kid, I couldn't completely comprehend what I was reading necessarily. But um, fortunately, like the Universe in a Nutshell book, I remember there's a large picture-heavy version. So it it was the book, but it also had a lot of images and, and whatnot. That was helpful. So that's what really got me going on. I guess my real, I developed a love for reading, but then also was like using it to get some nutrient, nutrient dense information basically. And I still read like that today. I still like to read really difficult, interesting nonfiction books. Um, and I've, there's kind of a sweet spot there where you're stretching, you know, you're reading a book that hurts to understand. You're like having to, you know, stop and reread and go back and like, you know, different authors instrumentalize language differently. So, um, it's always interesting kind of getting familiar with the voice of a certain author versus another. Um, but I pretty much made that a pretty serious habit for myself for a long time. Um, so throughout my teenage years, I was reading a lot. There were, I also had long stoppages as well. I got really into sport in my teenage years. I was into Olympic weightlifting. Uh, I played football and did wrestling for a little while earlier on in middle school. And then in college, you know, we you read for school, but it's not quite enough. So I would also read books I was interested in. Um, So that's like my early twenties. Oh, another thing that actually, this is pretty pertinent to Bitcoin is I kind of got my fill of astrophysics at some point. I'd read some other stuff, like got into chaos theory and nature and really kind of science heavy. But as I was getting closer to college and in college, I decided well, I really needed to learn about business. Like what, you know, what's going on in this world? How does this whole big machine work that we call the economy? And at some point I found the Economist magazine uh, published in the UK, I believe. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And very, I was very impressed with the writing. They're really good writers. Um, And just seemed like a really intelligent newspaper to be reading. It's a magazine, but they call themselves a newspaper as well. And so I started reading that weekly for a long time. I collected, I don't know, it was years. I used to have a big box of all the economists because I would read them and I would underline and I would write in the margins, usually like a bright red ink pen. And I would also journal about my thought, like trying to get my head around this whole thing. 
and it was good. You know, I think I learned a lot about re, you know, using language by studying that, but oddly enough, I could never get my head around economics after reading that thing. You know, you learn, you learn a lot, but you don't learn pure economics. They're not teaching Austrian economics in the economist magazine. I didn't know this at the time at all. I thought I was just, again, trying to read something really hard that I couldn't quite grasp. And I never felt like I could completely grasp what was going on in this magazine. Um, and now in hindsight, I think a lot of that is because it's heavily Keynesian influenced. Mm. There's a lot of kind of noise, you know, there's some useful knowledge there, but there's also a lot of pseudo economics, I would mm. say, or it's premised on a lot of pseudo economics. That got me into this book, the creature from Jekyll Island, which I've talked about a lot. I don't mm. recall exactly how I discovered it. Uh, oh, I think I was getting a newsletter. Someone was talking to me. A girl I was dating at the time, her, her stepfather was getting a newsletter on economics every week. So I started reading that as well. And it was much more libertarian. You know, it's mm. like, hey, you know, state intervention's bad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that opened me up to the creature from Jekyll Island. Um, and when I read that book, that was my, this is, I'm probably 19 or 20 by this time. Wow. That's young. That was my realization <laughs> that central banking is the main problem in the world, basically. Wow. Of all the problems, if you could solve one problem in the world, like just eliminate central banking and it would resolve. And when I say that, I mean specifically fiat currency zero reserve banking it's just a it's a fraudulent system basically and it's at the foundation of the modern global economy um i discovered that but and i've told the story before i got an abridged version of the book called dishonest money i shared it with family and friends and it was like trying to mobilize people like hey this is a real problem we got to do something about this and a couple of people I gave it to read it and got back to me and they just said, yeah, I, you know, agree with you. It sounds pretty bad, but like, what are you going to do? What can you actually do about this? And that feeling of hopelessness, despair, mm, frustration really stuck with me. Mm. I was just like, well, they're right. What can you do? I mean, you couldn't educate people about it, but it's going to take a lot more than education. So I think I sort of forfeited at that point. I was just kind of gave up on that pursuit, felt like I had found the bottom of a rabbit hole in a way, mm. but there wasn't a lot to be done. So I went on about my life. I got a master's degree in accounting and finance, and then I went into public accounting initially. And then I was uh, pretty much a career CFO until I, how old was I? Until I started my own company at the age of 30, 31. I've got lots of questions for you, Robert. I have to say, yeah. it's so interesting. You did much better than me on The Economist, taking out red pen and, and writing on it. I've got somewhere, I've probably thrown them out now because I've moved countries so many times, but... Mm. I had boxes of unread economists <laughs> mm, <laughs> thinking this yeah. is stuff I need to try and learn. And I'd often get mm. through, you know, they had the current affairs section at the start. Yep, yep, uh, I'd yep. get through that and then I'd read one or two of the articles, but I don't think I've ever finished oh, the entire economist. Like I should add this. I didn't read the whole magazine. I oh, would okay, read okay. the sections that I liked. Okay. And typically that was skipping all the current yeah. affairs. Uh, there was a section in the back they had, there were a few um, recurring articles like Beige Hot, mm. uh, a couple of other, I think, yeah. authors that penned an article every week. And some of those guys were really good. And then they had a whole economics section. They had a finance section and they had science and technology and they had art. Mm. And that's where I spent most of my time. And I would just go to the table of contents, look at what sounded interesting. I put a dot beside each one mm. and then I just start reading them and marking them off. Yeah, no doubt it's a great, um, or at least it was a great source of information because um, we'll be a similar age, I guess. I'm 33, turning 34 now. So 
would have studied at pretty similar times, I guess. Um, I'm 36. So. Yeah, okay. So a little older, but um, The Economist is basically very much part of like growing up as a teenager, studying business. Here's The Economist. You better read it. You start reading it. Mm. Some of it's interesting. Some of it's fucking boring. And I yeah. definitely didn't take a pen out and start making notes. So fair play on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I- I'm intrigued. So you mentioned you were an Olympic weightlifter. So I know that, you know, through life, we have different interests and different things as a 12, 13 year old boy, or, you know, you've discovered the superpower that's reading amazing. You've managed to obviously keep that up. And it's a a voracious appetite for for knowledge that you've clearly got. And then it's now being kind of regurgitated in your podcast and the articles that you've written. It's awesome. Um, And I bet many authors are similar in a sense in that terms of characteristic, but you know, you became a teenager, probably girls come along, they're much more interested in a book, <laughs> you know, you got into sport. So I'd love to know a bit more about Olympic weightlifting. Like, what does that actually involve? And yeah, me, I so, guess it's just like sporting mentality, people who are interested in elite performance, they have a certain type of characteristic. And that's what I'm intrigued by. Yeah. So when I mention this sport, people often think, oh, you went to the Olympics. No, I didn't go to the Olympics. It's the name of the sport is Olympic style weightlifting. Right. Um, and yeah, I was this immediately like, holy it, shit, were you in the Olympic team? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a very obscure sport in the United States. Uh, it's very popular in other countries like China, Russia, Turkey, you know, the, the top tier Olympic weightlifters in those countries or like Michael Jordan in the U S you know? Um, and I got into it. I was having wrestling practice at this off. It is a, was not at our school. It was at a recreation center. And in the same room, we basically shared a room. We had half the room was wrestling practice and half the room. This guy had set up these platforms and he was doing these, doing lifts basically it's a lot of stomping you know you have shoes with wooden soles you're on wooden platforms you're doing these explosive overhead lifts so there's a lot of noise you know dropping the weights lifting the weights stomping the feet all that so it kind of grabs your attention when you're in the presence of it and one of my friends that i was wrestling with at the time james his parents signed him up to do he was a little skinny guy i was kind of a chubby kid actually they signed him up for Olympic weightlifting in the off season to help him gain weight. And he just really got into it. Like he really liked it and he was getting bigger and stronger. Um, so eventually basically just convinced me to join too. And again, it was a very obscure sport at the time. It's more recognizable now because CrossFit has popularized the two lifts that we did competitively which are the snatch and the clean and jerk. Um, So, and you're basically just taking the weights off the ground overhead. The snatch is in one movement. The clean and jerk is in two movements. You clean and then put it over your head. And then you, in competition, you have three attempts at each lift. And then you add up the total weight of your lifts to get your total highest total wins. And it's, you know, stratified by weight class. So, got super into Olympic weightlifting. I was at the age of 13 and um, it became my everything. Basically, I was very obsessed with it. Um, I went on to compete internationally. I held five American records for a couple of years. Um, We did not, again, I wasn't on the Olympic team because I only did it from the age of 13 to 17. But we did... I had an all expense paid trip to the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs. They took the top eight lifters in the country every year and they would take them to a training camp. So I got to do that, which was super cool. And then there was this immersion into, into a subculture, you know, because no one in the U S knew what weightlifting was. So it didn't matter. But when you went to these competitions and you're one of the best lifters, like, the whole little subculture, everyone, all these kids traveling from around the country to come to one city and compete. You know, it's a few thousand people. You had this like little micro celebrity thing going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I learned, I mean, that was cool, but then just the, the lessons you learn, I think it instills work ethic a lot. 
teaches you about goal setting, right? To actually, as a kid, to think six months into the future and like, all right, I'm going to do this training program with the intention of going to this competition and winning. Like that was a, it's a big project for a kid to, to deal with. So I think sports in general are just so good for kids in this way. Um, I learned a lot. I think about visualization because I spent a lot of time even when I wasn't lifting, I'd either be, we'd get weightlifting magazines. Sometimes we'd watch video of other people lifting to try to study and, and correct our technique. Um, I spent a lot of time just, just visualizing myself, like what I'm doing wrong. It's a very technical sport. You, you spend your whole life trying to refine your technique and you can never perfect it basically. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot just about self-discipline, goal setting, visualization, um, maybe, you know, proof of work, I guess, you know, you just, you can't fake it. You can't hide it. You can't, it's not about looking buff or any of that, right? It's not bodybuilding. This is how much weight can you put over your head? <laughs> um, so and, you know, competition, I thrive in a competitive environment. Uh, I just, to, to go and compete and lift on stage is like very nerve wracking in a way. You know, you got to get up in front of a lot of people. You get the adrenaline rush, but then you have to learn to, I don't want to say control it, but learn to be with it, right? You can't let your nerves get away from you. You can't suppress it, but you have to be with that feeling and then you just have to perform. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I've only recently started lifting weights, probably in the last 12 months, having always been disinterested in that side of sport, shall we say. And I played a lot of football and rugby and stuff growing up, but um, I can feel my body changing underneath me over six months. Mm eight months has gone by and you're lifting heavier weights than you've ever lifted before. You feel leaner than ever before. And I'm really yeah. enjoying the process, but I'm in yeah. my mid thirties rather than a teenager mm -hmm. and, you know, looking to like be as competitive as possible. Isn't necessarily, I've got, you know, a child and got to run to the gym and then run home. I can't necessarily yeah. you know, do that. I mean, maybe someday. Um, but, uh, yeah, just to echo some of the feelings, I guess I've felt from lifting weights. It's an amazing feeling when you lift something you haven't lifted before obviously you mm -hmm. this 20 years ago and we're absolutely killing it at the time how cool it's something that's very evident to me when talking to people who are into bitcoin um this edge of uh competitiveness that seems to surround people and willing to yeah. take on challenges and they go actually i'm going to do fucking well at this get out of my way let me let me have mm -hmm. a go let me make a plan um and that that seems to be a characteristic that really shines through. Actually, people are willing to ask questions. People are willing to test themselves. People are willing to be wrong, um, but equally like, you know, move forwards or make progress in, in yeah. the process. Um, Robert, to draw back to the accounting and finance uh, kind of background that you clearly have, um, it's obviously very important when you're looking at a new form of money that mm -hmm. you understand in a sense what money is and hence that's the whole purpose of your podcast but the traditional accounting and finance degree probably didn't actually prepare you for bitcoin um, i found this with i did a business management degree so um, again like as a teenager i'm i'm interested in art i'm interested in sport interested in music but um, my father's influence at the time, you know, you've got to be able to make some money in the world. We had a family business, um, I still do. And it's like, okay, work out how to, you know, potentially get involved in that one day. And so I ended up in business school and, you know, Austrian economics is like a small footnote in the syllabus and you're taught about, you know, very much Keynesian philosophies and, and that's okay in that you don't know any different at the time. Um, what I'm intrigued by is, uh, the, education that you got like how much did it tee you up to understand bitcoin and how much did you have to learn and it's obvious to me from this story you spain you know about reading that you you're very capable of learning on your own and that's really what bitcoin's all about to be honest because no one's going to tell you how it actually is but um yeah perhaps you could just progress from there so you got your masters what did that teach you and then at some point you started your own business and came across bitcoin so we'll, we'll flow into that bit 
Yeah, it's uh, your intuition is correct that despite having a master's degree in accounting and finance, I didn't know what money. I did not understand money, mm. despite having gone. It's hilarious, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty funny. Pretty, pretty, pretty damn funny. Um, what I had and learned is money be up your whole life. Come join us, and then actually realize <laughs> you didn't. You didn't learn anything, or nothing. No, well, you nothing know real, maybe. Yeah, it's it's interesting that in the economics you learn in university, it's just money is issued and taken away by government. That's basically it. That's really all you learn. You don't get any insights into anything, right? Like how gold became money, why government hmm. monopolizes money, what inflation and you know currency counterfeiting actually does. You don't get any of that. Um, but I will say that learning accounting teaches you the language of business, which is very useful. Like it, I still use account. It's very useful for me to understand accounting and spreadsheets and financial flows. Uh, you can look at a business, right? You can look under the hood, so to speak. So that's all very useful. Um, and I have, like I said, I got my master's degree in accounting with a focus on taxation, ironically enough. And my takeaway from that, going through the tax program, the tax program at, I went to University of Tennessee, I think it was number 12 in the country at the time. So it was like one of the top rated tax accounting programs. My big takeaway was just how arbitrary and r ridiculous the tax code is. Mm. You'd be going through a certain you know, the, first of all, the IRS tax code, it's a massive book and it's always growing. It's one of the most complicated things in the world. I think it has like 9 million words in it or something. Well, it's probably way more by now. Wow. Again, I was in school. I was in the program in 2008, 2009. And my takeaway was, oh my gosh, this is just people fighting over these arbitrary rules and then there's this whole, you know, you're taking some of the smartest people in the world, then absorbing their time and attention to navigate this complex tax code and try and, you know, save their clients money. And you would see it actually in the code where it's like they would propose one thing, but then this other, this other party or, or lobby or whatever it was, didn't like the way they passed the code. So they would introduce something else. So it's like a negotiation. And then you end up with this weird twisting, oh, you get bonus depreciation, but then there's a clawback for 50%. But if you do it in the first year, you get another 20% off. Like it's total arbitrariness. And I remember just thinking at the time, it's like how much human energy is absorbed in navigating these laws and rules and regulations that we are putting, these constraints we place on ourselves. And I mean, you could argue about the utility of it or the value, but ultimately it's just one business. It's their revenue model, right? It's the government's revenue model, basically. So big takeaway was, man, there sure is a lot of excess complexity in this system. And I feel like there's a lot of really smart people in the world. I was surrounded by them. All the kids in my class were super smart. My professors were super smart. But they're pouring their attention, like decomplexifying or wrestling with this arbitrarily complex domain. So I was just, I thought it was a big waste of human energy, ultimately. Like people could be doing something productive, right? You could be building businesses or making stuff, but instead you're stuck in this. And I went into public accounting after getting the degree and I lived it for four years. I did four tax seasons and the lifestyle all those people is not humane whatsoever. They work 80 plus hour weeks for four or five months straight. Then they have a lot of time off and ability to relax and whatever, but you're essentially subjecting yourself to being a human computer for four or five months out of the year. And you're, you're working yourself to the bone and it's not work. I know a lot of people say they work a lot, whatever. This is you in front of a computer with workflows of complex, like 
it's not people often think accounting is math. It's not so much math. It's again, you're navigating. It's much more like being a lawyer, I guess. You're navigating, at least in tax, you're navigating all these legal complexities and trying to, you know, solve whatever objective it is, typically saving your clients money, right? Trying to get them tax optimized, develop a strategy, et cetera, et cetera. So that one really hurt, man. That was a really painful career experience out of the gate. I learned a lot though. I learned a lot about the inner workings of business. I learned that everything we learned in school, like it was somewhat useful, but then when you get into the business, the whole different ball game, you know, it's, you kind of learn the theory in school and then you see it in practice in the real world. Um, and pretty quickly I learned that accounting was not for me. <laughs> I would go to lunch with these guys and you know, I'm trying to like crack jokes and have some conversation and my personality type just did not fit. You know, these people are your stereotypical accountant, you know, they're just very, very dry to say the least. So four years of that and I decided no more for me. Um, and then I took a bet with a startup company actually in Las Vegas. It was a trade show production company. So you can think of them. It's like a specialty construction company. We would build trade shows and conferences and tear them down. And um, I was a CFO there for a number of years, three years, I think. And then I, that was a big improvement for me. I much more enjoyed kind of the entrepreneurial path. It was very challenging in its own ways, but not, it was not linear. The thing in accounting that killed me was the linearity. It's like you just do this grind for years and if you do it well, you go from staff to manager to partner and you, you know, get some equity in the business and make seven figures until you die. And that was, that was scary. So I learned that I enjoyed the entrepreneurial path much more, uh, but the industry was not, I didn't enjoy the industry too much. I grew up. I didn't mention this earlier, but I also grew up playing computer games and, and whatnot. So I'm a, I'm a digital native and I decided I wanted to work in something more forward, more modern. And so I took a role as a CFO at a hospitality technology company. So they were, we provided all the core operational software and some hardware as well for hotels and things like that. It's always so interesting to me the different steps we make. Um, they all blend into who we are today, but none of them are necessarily kind of premeditated in a sense. Um, right. The the opportunities arise. I mean, apart from anything else, learning what you don't like just mm. as important as learning what you do like. Absolutely. Um, and so, so Robert, so you mentioned earlier that you started your own company when you were around thirty, thirty-one. I assume mm. that's after the role you had as a CFO with the hospitality and technology um, business yep. mentioned. Um, and there was one other role I had before that too, as a CFO of a hospital, I'm sorry, CFO of a healthcare software company as well. Healthcare as well, okay. And so what, um, so your entrepreneurial like instinct kicked in essentially, you're like, right, I can do this or whatever problem you, you must've come across. Talk to me a bit about the business that you set up. Um, I'd also be keen to hear about your, um, your gaming background as well, because that's also a big part of it. Uh, yeah, sure. I can tell you about that first. So. I grew up playing, I'm trying to think the first video game I played, and we played regular Nintendo, if you guys remember that one, just the directional pad and A and B, you know, we played Mario and Duck Hunt and all those games, but then got into Super Nintendo, super cool. My real, the game I was obsessed with I think I would play, start playing when I was like probably 10 to 13, 10 to 14, something like that. Diablo 2. It's like a dungeon crawler game. And there's a lot of, a lot of customization. Like you can go into the world and get these different items and equip yourself, you know, in a near infinite number of ways. So there was a lot of control over control autonomy i guess you would say you can take the game a lot of different directions based on your decisions something like a strategy or role-playing game 
and it was also online. <laughs> so you would play with all these other people around the world. You could either quest together or you could battle one another. And there was an economy in the game too. People would trade these items. And so I started out playing the game, but over time I ended up playing in the economy. I would just trade these items and you know, try to buy low on one channel, sell high in another channel. They had all these different trade channels. And I ended up becoming kind of a tycoon in the game. Like I was the rich guy, I just had a bunch of, you know, swords and shields and rings, all the things people wanted. <laughs> and the stuff um, you need in the real world. Yeah, all right. And I also just learned, I guess, sort of econ 101 in the trenches, just supply and demand, buy low, sell high, all that. Mm. I learned to type really fast. I was also taking typing, was I taking typing classes? I can't remember if I took typing classes before or after, but during my time playing that video game, I started typing really fast. I could type like 90 or 100 words a minute just because you're trading, right? The faster you type, the more profitable you are. And the last piece there that I think really set me on a path towards Bitcoin, not that I knew it at the time, was those items started to be sold on eBay for real money. So all of a sudden, all this in-game wealth I had accumulated had real world value. Wow. And I remember thinking as a kid, I was just like, holy shit, this is going to like, if you can touch the digital world to real money, then it's probably going to go the other way too. Because it's just easier and quicker to trade online than it is to go and like stand around and try to negotiate with a few people. So I just had this like sort of dim apprehension that digital and business was going to like be really, there's going to be a lot of unification there, I guess. And it sort of stuck with me in that when I was trying to articulate what trajectory I wanted to take my career, I said I wanted to go along the convergence of finance, technology, and commerce. Felt like those things were going to mesh well. And so that kind of led me into the accounting and led me to focus on tech and all the things. So I kind of like to joke that I was in digital assets before Bitcoin and I was trading these little <laughs> digital we weapons. I mean, that's, 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 that's absolutely true. Yeah. So it was, yeah, interesting. Um, and so I told you about the gaming. I'm sorry, I forgot the first part of the question. No, we were going to just talk about the business that you set up. So, um, oh, the business. Yeah, don't yeah. get so, me wrong. I, I'm loving the the tangent into gaming. <laughs> I feel like um, everyone has. So Bitcoin is different things to different people, um, but you ask the same set of questions to different people about why they're into Bitcoin, and you get completely different answers. Mm -hmm. I.e., everyone's journey is unique, and everyone's lens is is slightly different to another's. And so, these That's different. Right. Um, <clears throat> touch points that people have experienced during their lifetime that suddenly give them clarity on what is look what they're looking at. That's mm -hmm. what I'm interested in. So yeah, that's a great a great segue um, into. Well, it's another part of the reason that you became interested in it in a sense. Yeah. yeah so, 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 this so, is, so the company you started. This is somewhat interesting. I think so. I was a CFO at companies called Skywire the hospitality technology company in Las Vegas. We were raising money. Um, we raised some money and then the CEO was just not super engaged. So it got to the point where the board basically fired the CEO for short, long story short, the board threw out the CEO and they appointed an interim CEO from the board, but they said, look, in the next kind of six to 12 months, this is just kind of a stopgap. We're going to fill this position with someone else. I was like, all right, sounds good. As myself and the chief operating officer, this is a kind of a mid-sized company. So we we're probably like a 50 to hundred million enterprise value range, something like that. We're in the process of taking over a company out of Vancouver as well. And so I kind of developed this close relationship with the board and they were asking me, you know, what they're just basically leaning on me, my judgment, my, my intimate knowledge of the business. And we did some things that I suggested and they were, we had some success. And 
so things are going really well. I was, my compensation was increasing. The value of the business was increasing. We're getting back on track, but all the while I was liking my job less and less and less and less and less. It was just more politics, more meetings, more management over like, you know, I think a lot of people, some people experience this where they get into some industry that they like, they like the work itself. But then if you start to progress up the ladder, you end up being more in the managerial function, more like an executive function and less in the business itself. And that, that can sort of disconnect you from what brought you into the business originally. And I felt kind of the same. And so I got to this point where I was financially secure. I was unsatisfied with my work and I just needed a change. Basically uh, something's not right here. And so I decided I'm going to go work for myself. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do yet, but I'm going to wor go work for myself. So I, it's funny when you make decisions, things just start to happen. A customer just fell into my lap. Then a few months later, it's like someone that was looking for CFO consulting, basically for, this was the healthcare startup that I mentioned, the healthcare software startup. So a friend of a friend connected me with a guy, they needed a CFO. I was kind of helping them do some models on the side, you know, on the weekends and then working the full-time job. And so eventually it got to this point where it was a fork in the road. You know, I could go do this thing full-time. The other difference was I could move out of Las Vegas. I wasn't too happy living in Las Vegas. I wanted to be on the water, preferably. And so this job was going to let me go to Los Angeles, which was a nice, a big influence on my decision, actually. And it got to the point where I had to make a decision. And so when I mentally decided, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, this job, sound, this current job I'm in is going the right direction, but I'm not satisfied. So I'm going to listen to my heart, so to speak, and take this other one. The very next day after I made that decision, just to myself, I didn't announce it to anyone. I was just like, all right, I'm going to go this direction. The very next day I go in and they tell me, I'm talking to, there's one main guy that was, uh, he represented the largest investor in the business. So he was the chairman of the board. And so we had a conversation and he's like, Hey, that interim CEO position we told you about, we put together a list of replacements and you're at the top of the list. I was like, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, we want to make you a CEO. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Like the, literally the night before, day before, I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then very next it's day, so I'm random like, how that stuff we're off you the CEO position. And then he starts going through all the things, you know, what the, the package is and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you know, take some time. Let me know. I'm like, okay. So, I just thought that was a strange synchronicity in a way. And then I went home and just started talking to the people in my life about it. I laid the options out side by side, kind of pros and cons of each. And I won't bore you with the details, but basically the CEO job was going to be significantly more money, obviously, than going to jump ship and do my one CFO consulting client, starting my own business, whatever that was. It was very open-ended and high risk. So I kind of circulated my list of pros and cons with people close to me and asked for feedback from everyone. And everyone was like, um, man, that's a lot of money. You should probably just do that. <laughs> Even if you don't want to do that, <laughs> you're fucking, you're 30 years old and you're going to be the CEO. What a, it could have been a publicly traded company too, because if we completed this business combination, we were going to like list on the Toronto exchange and all this. So I really thought about it for a long time, not a long time, maybe a week or two, I guess. And I ultimately decided to follow my heart. I just, for whatever reason, wanted to go west, be on the water, start something new, do my own thing, not have to deal with the politics, the meetings, blah, blah, blah. So I turned down the offer and I went and started my own company. And initially it was just that, just that CFO consulting client. But on the side, 
I was also studying and investing in crypto. And when I read Nick Zabo, I, well, it's, this is kind of ironic. The concept of smart contracts was introduced to me through Ethereum marketing. Cause you know, they used to market themselves as a smart contract platform, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, what in the fuck is a smart contract? So I started doing some digging. And when I discovered Nick Zabo's work on smart contracts, I think it was written in the mid to late nineties. That was my light bulb moment. I was like, oh my goodness, this technology is a big deal because the entire finance industry is a smart contract, this intermediate layer between buyers and sellers. Today, we populate that smart contract with humans, expensive humans. But if this technology works, we're going to populate it with code, basically. So that was my aha moment. Smart contracts are going to be a big deal. I'm going to go ahead and start buying some of this crypto stuff. And I bought a lot of it. Um, you know, I had some cash. So I bought a lot of the, I think the top 10 market cap weighted. Actually, I didn't even buy the top 10. I just bought Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin initially, which were the three on Coinbase. And then started going into that rabbit hole. This was early 17. And then 2017 bull run commenced. So the whole market was up. 1800% in a year. I moved to Los Angeles the end of 2016 and then was investing and then the market exploded during 2017. And during that time, everyone in the world that knew me was like, Hey man, you've been talking about this stuff. It keeps going up. What's going on? What is this? What do I buy? How do I buy it? Blah, blah, blah. And so eventually, um, and I had connected with another guy in LA through the business actually that was also making a career transition and he had some money and he was interested in what, what I was doing and what I was studying. And so we just decided to start a, a fund, an investment fund. Um, and that's it. The business basically became a multi-strategy crypto asset fund initially. And then I kept studying the space, kept learning more. And the more I learned, the more, focus and emphasis I placed on Bitcoin. I started to see Bitcoin as like the whole thing or most of the thing, if you will. And fund operations reflected that. I stopped trading shit coins and started trading options on Bitcoin, really trying to, to generate alpha and Bitcoin terms. And that was it. So I ran that business from, again, 2017 until the end of 2020. Um, and I guess to put a button on that, you know, 2020, I think a lot of people had light bulbs in 2020 for different reasons, but my light bulb, I got to that point again in the business where it was very stressful for me. It was very, I wasn't fulfilled by it. I wasn't, a, I wasn't enjoying what I had to do every day. And my light bulb was here I am spending all my blood, sweat, and tears trying to outperform the best performing asset in human history, which is Bitcoin. That was our benchmark, right? If I can't outperform buy and hold Bitcoin net of fees, then why would I be a fund? You know, anyone could just buy and hold. So spent a lot of energy trying to do that, had mixed success. But in the end, my realization was I can just buy and hold Bitcoin. <laughs> and free myself from all this that I don't want to do and then get on doing whatever I do want to do in life. Mm. And also thanks to people like Mr. Saylor and others that are, that have a heavy emphasis on education and coupled with my own learnings on the Bitcoin rabbit hole and seeing that people in the world just don't understand how the economic system is designed, I decided to shift my energies towards focusing on education full-time. And that was my decision to start the show. And then again, sort of by synchronicity, once I decided I was going to start the show, the, well, I, I guess I kind of dragged my feet for a little bit. I was like, what am I going to do? Who am I going to talk to? What am I going to call it? Blah, blah, blah. But then around- A bit of procrastination that, always helps. Yeah. The procrastination phase- <laughs> Mr. 
Sailor DMs me in August 2020 and he's like, hey, we just bought $500 million in Bitcoin. Oh. Thanks for your work. We think it's brilliant. I'm like, what? It's <laughs> weird. Uh, it's not a DM you get every day. And then I didn't know the guy at all, but I just said, hey, this is opportune. Just how about I want to talk to people on a podcast long form about big ideas. I think I'm going to call it, I was going to either call it deep conversations or what is money. And we leaned what is money. And so that's where it all started. Brilliant. Well, Robert, it's um, an hour's flown by. Thank you so much for sharing everything you have. It's, it's incredible, the idea that Bitcoin is the best performing asset of all time and that all you need to do is buy it and hold it. And it, it does seem like everyone has to slightly earn their stripes in terms of looking at what else is going on around and being lured off by shiny objects that sound too good to be true and then turn out mm. to more often than not be too good to be true. Um, right. What what really intrigues me though, well, a couple of things. One thing I, I comment on is the fact that you created the pros and cons list for making a decision as big as taking a CEO role, CEO role or doing something off your own steam and sharing it with your nearest and dearest. I love that as a concept. <laughs> like people yeah. don't necessarily take the effort to do that. But then your character, you said, actually, no, I'm doing something my own steam. And at the end of the day, other people's comments or opinions or decisions were you know helpful but equally you know you just decided what you were going to do and I, I love that in people you know whether it's overcoming challenge or making difficult um, decisions at the end of the day it comes down to just yourself take responsibility make mm -hmm. a decision go for it um, mm. and and then this idea that by buying bitcoin you have liberated your time and you have become able to focus on what you really love doing um, and that mm. of course shines through in your work but I think we'll see that more and more, right? As people begin to realize that they can adopt this, this technology that's effectively, I love thinking of it as a savings technology. You're yeah. not making an investment. It's a way to save your time and energy. And um, people are doing it, right? Technically, that's so cool. technically, that's the right definition, by the way. You reckon? Because okay. inve Well, investing would be putting your capital at risk in an operating business, trying yeah. to outperform some yeah. benchmark. Saving is holding an asset to store value across time that's mm. insulated from all that market risk. So, you know, clearly Bitcoin is not that today, but Bitcoin proponents see it as becoming that, right? It's the ultimate risk on asset today because it's competing to become the ultimate risk off asset. Mm. And it is liberating. Like you said, it, it's, it's liberating on kind of a macro scale and that, it is, you know, and where I'm deeply passionate about it is I think we finally have an answer to central banking. Hmm. But yeah, it's also 19 year old you that was like reading the Jekyll Island, <laughs> creature from Jekyll Island yeah. going, fuck, how do I do anything about this is, you know, found a solution. Yes. Yeah. When I, I finally read the Bitcoin standard in 2018, I think that was my final fall into just being focused on Bitcoin. It was like, this is the answer that I was looking for so many years ago. Hmm. But then it also, to your point, it liberates you individually. And in that, I mean, now I, I've, I've, again, I feel so grateful and privileged that I've made my work my play. I mean, this is what I would like to do if money were no object. And I feel grateful for that. Yeah, it's such a cool concept, isn't it? Work equals play. Um, and it makes you start thinking about from like a creativity perspective, how many people every single day do something that they don't give a shit about just to pay the bills and they're getting paid in a money that disintegrates faster than they realize. And right. the truth is they're incredibly smart. Like humans are so smart. Give them the time and the space to do what they love. They'll come up with a, a brilliant solution to whatever the problem yeah. was they were trying to solve, whether that is designing something or you know, painting or creating music or who knows. Mm. Um, it's quite extraordinary to think about what the future might have in store um, as this proliferates you know, around the world. And hence, here we are talking about it. Um, Robert, <laughs> my last question for you is, uh, where can people get in touch with you uh, if they want to reach out? Yeah, you could find me on Twitter at Breedlove22, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. 
Um, there's a link on my profile to a link tree that's got links to all my other work, the, the What Is Money show. Uh, we co-authored a book called Thank God for Bitcoin. Um, other things that I'm working on, I try to keep that current. Um, so yeah, that's a good way, good way to find me. You could follow also just the show itself, the whatismoneypodcast.com. That's got all our episodes in audio form. We're also on YouTube. Awesome. Well, Robert, thanks so much for spending some time with me today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, Jake. Thank you so much. Friends, you made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to Bitcoin with Jake. Early support for the show has been so encouraging, so I couldn't be more appreciative of people sharing their most important resource, their time. Remember, if you like what you heard, please share the episode far and wide. And if you want to get in touch, please reach out as I would love to hear from you. The best place is Twitter. My handle is at Jake E.S. Woodhouse or the podcast handle is at Bitcoin with Jake. Enjoy the rest of your day. All the best, Jake.